Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. All right. All right. Well, turn your, you guys know the drill. Turn to your neighbor and say, man, you look really good. I love your face. I love everything about it. I love your shoes. Come on, come on, come on. All right, turn to your, your second choice and say, go Seahawks. Go Seahawks. Come on. Go Seahawks. Well, um, I am uh, excited to be with you. My name is Chris, if you're a guest. And uh, my wife and I were the lead pastors. Kelly's my wife. And uh, we've been leading this church for about a year and a half. Can you believe it? It goes by so fast. And uh, you guys are still here. Shocker. Um, I want to thank you guys for uh, believing in, in God. And I think we have um, one of the best churches in the world. Can I get an amen to that? So today, uh, we, we've been in our sermon series called Learning to Be on Mission, and so we're just taking the church through the book of Philippians. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 12. We're just going to read just a few verses today. And I want to talk to you about a subject that, to be honest, I really don't like talking about. It's a subject that we don't, I think, is Americans. How many Americans do we have here? All right. How many Idahoans do we have here? How many hunters do we have here? Come on, come on. Bigfoot enthusiasts, do we? All right, we got a few of you. All right. Um, but as Americans, Idahoans, I mean, we, we don't like to talk about this subject. And the subject that I want to talk to you about is suffering. And suffering is a hard thing. It's something as a, as, as a pastor I don't always like to think about. I think many times we insulate our our lives from suffering, from hardship, from difficulty. And uh, I just want to give you Paul's perspective on suffering uh, because we'll all, uh, how, many, how many humans do we have here? We got about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay. We got about 700 humans here uh, this, this afternoon. And uh, we all know we've either experienced suffering or maybe some of you are going through suffering right now. Um, in the future, we might suffer. And I want to give you a, a biblical perspective on, okay, so how do we think about suffering? If you've been here the last few weeks, we've, we've talked about joy. How many of you want more joy in your life? Okay. Uh, but Paul is writing about joy uh, in the middle, and this book, Philippians, is, is all about his uh, theology of joy. He's writing about joy in the middle of horrible suffering. Paul knows what it's like to suffer. We don't know. We find in verse 12, and I want to read this really quick. Verse 12, Paul lets us know that, man, some bad stuff has been happening to him. And he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to, could you say that word, advance. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That's, man, that's like, for, for us, it's kind of like crazy talk, right? So you're saying, Paul, that you're suffering, and there's an ambiguity to what, what, what has happened to you, but you're suffering and your problems. How many of you have more than 99 problems, right? We got a lot of them. So how do, we, how do we understand suffering? And Paul, how do we understand Paul saying that his suffering somehow has advanced the gospel? 
We don't know what Paul is experiencing as he's writing this letter. He wrote this letter in the mid-50s. He's in prison in in Ephesus. Uh, We know he's uh, suffered through starvation. He's been shipwrecked. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. We're not talking about Mary Jane. He's literally been stoned by rocks. So Paul, Paul knows a level of suffering that, man, we don't, I think, truly understand. So Paul, he's, he's writing this letter. We don't know if he's cold. We don't know if he's hungry. We don't know if he's being tortured. Uh, we, we, he obviously doesn't have uh, health like as, as Americans, what we value. Uh, we value the American dream, and he's kind of living the inverted American dream. He has no health. We find in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that there's a thorn in his flesh. That's kind of a reference, and scholars debate about what it means, but it's a reference to possibly sickness, something that has afflicted him. He doesn't have wealth. He, he has no money. Uh, he doesn't have uh, a white picket fence. He doesn't have a golden retriever. Uh, he, he's not driving a Subaru, doesn't have the Boise co-op, he doesn't have vegan options. He has none of it, right? He doesn't have Netflix, he doesn't have the iPhone X. He can't self-medicate by watching Stranger Things, right? He can't binge watch. So he doesn't have anything that we would probably consider um, joy-filled. So what, what's the secret here? We, and I, I think if, man, if we evaluated his subjective well-being as Americans, we, we might consider him um, maybe in a hopeless situation. Yet Paul makes it very clear that what has happened to him has advanced or brought God's purposes forward into his life. I, I think Paul, I think Paul is lined up. Actually, I know Paul is lined up with one of the greatest statements of faith that we find in Scripture. And it's found in Genesis chapter 50. I think it's verse 21 and, and 23. And uh, how many of you know the story of Joseph? Like Joseph, if you don't know the story of Joseph, some of you might not know it. Uh, Joseph in chapter, I believe, 39 receives a, a, a dream from God. And he starts telling all his, his bros. How, how many people have, you have siblings? All right, you have some brothers and sisters. Okay, you don't want like Joseph's brothers um, or sisters. They're slightly psychopathic. So he tells his psychopathic bros about his vision that he's eventually going to kind of rule the world. And one day, Jacob, Jacob plays favorites. If you're a dad, if you're a mom, don't play favorites. That creates dysfunction. So this is a dysfunctional family. You have psychopathic brothers that don't like Joseph. Joseph has told them uh, the dream that God has given him. So they're like, their hearts are filled with jealousy. So one day, Jacob says, I'm gonna, uh, Joseph, I want to send you to uh, your brothers. There's some information, some news I need you to tell them. So on his way, the brothers see him. And they plot this plan. They want to take his life. And so they decide wisely, uh, actually it's not wisely, but at least they don't take his life. They, they throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery. The question you might be thinking about, because Joseph, the Bible tells us, is, is God's choice. Joseph is, is blessed. Joseph is um, a man that uh, God is with. So how do you reconcile blessing, God's blessing, with suffering? Because the question that, I, and I just I want us to think about this, how, why would God allow suffering 
to take place or to occur in the life of the servant of someone that he's blessed. Many of us think that joy and suffering are mutually exclusive experiences on the continuum of life. And the Bible says no to that. You, in the midst of your suffering, you can still have joy. You can still have peace. You can still have contentment. So what we know in the story of Joseph is that we, we don't have a full answer of why God doesn't remove or obliterate evil. How many of you would say that suffering is evil? It's not a trick question. Raise your hand. Yeah. God did not create humans and then said, I want you guys to suffer. I want you to be, your house to be filled with cats, and I just want you to watch the Raiders all day long. I just want you to suffer. God didn't create you to suffer. Suffering is inherently evil. So the question that the, the, the biblical story tells us is how God addresses evil. We know in the story of Joseph that God contains it and does not let evil do its worst. So Joseph is sold into slavery by his psychopathic brothers. And uh, we find in Genesis 39, there's an inclusio, which basically means the whole chapter is framed by this one saying, God was with Joseph. The problem is that the middle of this chapter is all about how Joseph was betrayed or falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife uh, falsely accused Joseph of sexual misconduct. Potiphar then throws him into jail, an Egyptian prison, left to die. And here we have this story of Joseph, who had a vision from God, believed that God was going to work through his life, and now he finds himself in an Egyptian prison. What is he going to do? Well, about two years went by. Pharaoh uh, hears of Joseph, hears of a, of, a, of a man in a prison who can interpret dreams. So he calls him up to his royal court and uh, tells Joseph his dream. Joseph interprets the dream. Pharaoh anoints Joseph as the second in command in all of Egypt. God rescues, I, I want you to hear me, God rescues the world through Joseph. In some way, the biblical story shows us the strange. Everyone say strange. Man, if you like Stranger Things, you're going like, to like how God, like how he rolls. God works, and it's strange, through the multiple ambiguities of suffering and betrayal and even psych psychopathy and uh, difficulty and false accusation and Egyptian prison. And he works through all the suffering that Joseph experienced so that he could bring his purpose, his promise forward into Joseph's life. Because what God ultimately wanted to do was not just to give a nice little calling for Joseph. He wanted to rescue. He wanted to save the entire ancient world through Joseph. And somehow God worked out every single detail in Joseph's life, bringing his purpose forward. So Paul is echoing this story when he says, everything that has happened to me has happened to advance the gospel. So what, what we need to do, we need to think like Paul. Paul is thinking like Joseph. And uh, Paul has learned the art of seeing good things produced out of suffering and problems and difficulties. Paul has a strong confidence that, yes, even though we might be going through difficult things, even though as Christians, as we follow Jesus, we might experience um, Difficult situations, that does not mean God has abandoned us. That yes, 
we can have confidence in the middle of our suffering. Even when we don't feel like we have confidence, we can have confidence that God produces good things out of the multiple frustrations and rejections and, and, and difficult situations that we've experienced, producing wonderful things for God's glory. This is how Paul, with a straight face, can say, man, hey, this suffering that I've experienced, what has happened to me, has advanced the gospel. Now, I don't think Paul is like, um, anyone like Christmas uh, movies? You like the elf? Like, I mean, come on, we all love the elf, right? Um, what I love about the elf is, uh, or whatever his name is in the elf, Buddy. Come on, Buddy. How many of you love Buddy? Love Buddy. I love how he just sings. I love how cheery he is, right? How many of you want more Christmas cheer uh, this Christmas? Okay, about five of you want Christmas cheer over Christmas, right? But I love how he just, you know, he's just so kind of blithely cheerful. He's like, I'm singing. He just loves to sing. I don't know what I'm singing about, but I, I wish I had Mark Thornton's voice. But I'm singing, I'm singing. This is amazing. This is amazing, right? He sings all the time. And many people think when, when Paul makes this uh, confession that he believes what happened to him advanced the gospel that somehow Paul is kind of like the elf, kind of like denying suffering is like that cheerful type, like suffering is illusory. Paul does not think that at all. Case in point, I want to take you to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul tells us uh, an experience that he had, a very difficult trial that he went through in verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burned beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Verse 9, indeed we felt, everyone say feel. Indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And then he says in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver this, deliver us. I love how Paul has this forward look, is this strong confidence that even though he's in the middle of this story, God is going to work everything out, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. I love he said, I felt so Paul can feel despair. Some of you came in today struggling. Some of you came in today wanting to not continue. There might even be some people here today, this week you've contemplated taking your life. Maybe there are some Christians here, you've struggled with rejection. And you know on a visceral level what suffering is like. Some of you are tired, exhausted, you're broke, you lost your job, your husband, your wife betrayed you, your kids aren't serving Jesus. Maybe you're trying to figure out, God, I thought, man, if, if I truly was blessed, why would I experience this kind of, of suffering? Well, Paul says, I felt the sentence of death. Let me just say something. I love this. Paul here is a picture of Christian maturity. In other words, he makes a distinction between belief and feelings. 
He basically says that I believe that God will work out everything for my good, even though I feel like God will not work everything out for my good. Hear me now. We don't live. See, Americans live the the good feel of feel, right? We live by our emotions. We live by how we feel. Paul lives by the fight of faith. Paul makes it very clear that I fight the good fight of faith. I don't feel the good feel of feel. So there's a distinction that Paul is making. I can feel like really bad. I can feel despair. It's okay to feel that way, but I'm still confident and still believe that God will take my situation and produce good out of it. That God will take my circumstances, my life, because it's really not about me, right? It's about the gospel. It's about Jesus. It's about how he has changed the world. It's about how he defeated evil in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus. Come on. It's about that. But I can believe that God will work in the multiple ambiguities of my life and bring his purposes to a dramatic conclusion, even though I don't feel like it. Paul's faith is rooted In Genesis chapter 50, the greatest statement, as I take this full circle, back to Genesis chapter 50, in Joseph's life, God worked out everything for Joseph, and in Genesis 50, Joseph is having a conversation with his bros, and they're a little bit concerned. Jacob is um, about ready to pass away, and so they come to Joseph and say, Joseph, please don't exact revenge on us, and Joseph looks at them and says, hey, don't be afraid. What you did, you meant it for evil, but God, everyone say, but God. Come on, say that again, but God. Could you say it one more time, but God. But God, I like, come on, say it one more time, but God. But God turned it or meant it for good. Like you're rejected, right? That person said something over your life, but God can turn that around. Your husband cheated on you. It's horrible. And we will not justify adultery, but we know that God can turn out everything for your good, right? You went through, you made bad decisions, you made stupid decisions, but God can take out of the badness, out of the difficult situations in your life and bring his purpose for you forward. It's strange, it doesn't always make sense, but you know what we need, I think, as American Christians, we need some good old-fashioned faith. My son this morning, my wife told me this, he's a good old Pentecostal preacher. Man, I love it. He woke up, and uh, he was praying with my wife, and he said, this is what he prayed. He's like, Jesus, I just, I'm so glad that you're the king of the world, and that you, you're, you save everybody, and that you're healing creation. Like, I love, he's listening to me, right? Like you're healing creation, you've defeated evil. Lord, I thank you for running this town and you're giving food to all the, all the people and I just bind you to my will. <laughs> and then he went on, but Jesus, you're the king of the world, right? And I love you. You know what I love about that? I love, we're not gonna change bind you to, I, I'm sure God thinks that's hilarious. I'm sure he loves it. Um, but what I love about Quincy, he just has a simple faith. He's like, God, I know there's some things that don't make sense, but you're still king of the world. I know there's still some bad people out there. I I know there's some things that I don't fully comprehend that is happening in our world, but you are the rescuer of creation. That's the kind of faith that we need.
We need to have a good old-fashioned reformation of faith. I don't know if you know this, but uh, this last Halloween, we celebrated the 500-year anniversary of, of the Reformation. If you're not familiar with it, Martin Luther, in 1517, October 31st, took his 95 theses and nailed it on a church called All Saints. I just love it. All Saints Church took his 95 theses and nailed it in, in, in Wittenberg, Germany. And his, the- his theses, or his argument, was that the church, they lost their first love. They were not in step with the New Testament. He had issues with um, indulgences. He had issues with ecclesiastical uh, corruption. And yet he wanted to bring the church. He wanted to refocus. Everyone say refocus. He wanted to refocus the church back to the simplicity of God loving us and walking not by our own strength, but walking by faith. In fact, the anthem of the Reformation was sola fide, right? Faith and faith alone. I think what we need as the church when it comes to responding to difficult situations that we're going through, we need God to come in and fill our hearts again with fresh faith. Turn to your neighbor and say fresh faith. We need renewed faith. In fact, I read this week um, one American pastor said, you know what the greatest danger to the church in America is not secularism. The greatest danger of the church is not, man, it's, this is, these are my words, it's, it's not therapeutic materialism, it's not philosophical naturalism, it's not the hard sciences, it's not um, what people are saying, it's not atheists, it's not what the Democrats are doing or not doing, or the Republicans, what they're doing or not doing. The greatest threat to the church, it's not a secular point of view. The greatest threat to the church is cynicism. We no longer act or believe or live our lives as if the gospel is true. So we come on a Sunday, can I talk like this? We come on a Sunday and we lift up our hands, but we really don't believe that God is gonna move in our life. Come Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we're living our lives as if the kingdom of God is not true. As if the gospel is not true. As if the death, burial, and resurrection was just about, you know, Uh, getting your sins forgiven, and then maybe one day flying off to heaven, into outer space somewhere. That's not what the gospel is all about. And I think what God is asking us to do is to open up our hearts wide this Sunday and to allow the Holy Spirit to come and give us fresh faith that God can take every circumstance of your life and work it out for his good. My question is, do you believe that? Do you believe? You see, there's a whole generation. I'm going to be honest with you. I think there's a generation in the Western world that's looking at American religion and asking the question, is it for real? Is it for real? And we come here today, and we worship, and we, we have a nice little talk, and we have some baby dedications, and we experience God's presence, there are people out there that are wondering, okay, is it for real? Is God real? Is God alive? Does he really love me? 
You see, there's a danger in the church. And Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, there will be people that will have an appearance of religion but will deny its power. What, what is that? Well, they just come to church and they don't expect God to do anything. They come to church and they're dominated by how they feel and they can't make the distinction that though they feel, man, sucky and they feel like upside down and sideways, but they still can believe that God can work out everything in their life because they don't understand that distinction, what happens? They lose a sense of God's power and so they walk around with an appearance of religion. And they have no power because they do not believe that God is good. Is your faith real? Uh, let's, let's be honest with ourselves this morning. Is our faith real? Is God good? Did Jesus, did Jesus win the victory over evil or not? Is Jesus right now in heaven, ruling creation as its king or not? Is, he, is Jesus in charge of the cosmos or not? When Jesus died, did he absorb radical evil in his body and then through his resurrection release new creation or God's brand new world that is now flooding our world or not? Is that true or not? And as Christians, in light of this 500-year anniversary of the, the birth of the Reformation, I, I think our call, my call, the call of the church, is to go back to the simplicity of simply believing that the good news is true. That God indeed is the king of the world. And that my life now belongs in his kingdom. This is the logic that shapes Paul's entire thinking, his imagination. And then we come to verse 13, and Paul says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So here we have a conundrum. Paul, he's an apostle. And now he's in prison. Apostles, they're supposed to talk about, announce the good news, and yet he can't do that because he's in prison. One scholar said it's like a concert pianist with his hands tied behind his back. I like to say it'd be like Steph Curry without his 30-foot jump shot. Right? Who is Steph without his 30-foot jump shot? Right? Some of you, apparently none of you watch basketball. All right. Like it's, it's I'm trying to think of, of illustrations. It's like me not being a redhead. I just, I don't even know how I would exist, right? I am a redhead. It's like, how, he's in this conundrum. He's, he's summoned by Christ, by Jesus, to announce the good news, and he's in prison. Well, I just love Paul's perspective. Paul, uh, he said, hey, I'm, I'm now surrounded by the praetorium. The praetorium consisted of 9,000 elite guards. Every four hours, they would change guard, and they would watch over Paul. So I think Paul's like, hey guys, um, it is amazing what has happened to me because it's advanced the gospel, and now I'm being chained every four hours to another elite guard, and I'm talking to them about Jesus. I love this. So Paul, because he's so in love with Jesus, and because he believes in the gospel, 
doesn't worry about what he is going through. He's so obsessed with King Jesus. And he said, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, verse 14, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So it's, people now are watching Paul. And there are early Christian groups that are watching Paul suffer in prison. And they see his courage and his confidence. And what does it do? It causes confidence in some of these early Christian groups that begin to announce Jesus as king of the world. You see, when, when you know that something's real, it changes you. For, for example, I, I read a story uh, early this week about a woman who suffered. Uh, she was in her 70s, and she suffered for some time. And it was, a, it was a chronic disease, and she went to a doctor. She went to many doctors to try to get cured. And finally, one doctor said, you have an incurable disease. I won't get into the details. But she was in pain every single day. And she loved Jesus, and she prayed. We believe in healing. Can I get an amen? Um, we believe God can heal today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, so she prayed for healing, and she wasn't being healed. So how do you reconcile that? Well, she made a decision to simply be faithful. So every single day as she um, experienced extraordinary pain, she made a decision not to complain about it. She made a decision to, just to simply be faithful. And she believed that God still had a plan that he wanted to work out through her life. Well, she uh, had a next-door neighbor. It was, a, it was um, a, a single mom who was unchurched. She wasn't, she wasn't a follower of Jesus. And over about five, a five-year period, she um, just developed a relationship with this single mom. The single mom uh, eventually had a couple sons, and over a five-year period, this single mom converted to Christianity, not because of the words of this woman who suffered so much pain. The single mom converted to Christianity because of the reality that she experienced as this woman suffered and chose not to complain in her suffering, and it was just proof it was an apologetic to this woman that Jesus must be real. But the story gets better. She has a son. Her son makes a decision to follow Jesus. He goes to India and leads hundreds of thousands of people in India to Jesus. He then goes to Australia and writes some of the best New Testament commentaries in the 20th century. All because one woman was faithful to follow Jesus, and she believed and she was confident, even in her suffering, that God was going to take this bad thing in her life and make something good out of it. I love that. So what if, Chris, I'm weak. I must be like a, a sub-Christian. I must not have enough faith. False. There are some people that say that, hey, and I remember when, when I was uh, 17 years old, and I've shared this story before, uh, I was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes. And uh, I had a buddy who came over to my house and said, Chris, I think you probably need to repent of all your sin uh, because you probably opened a door and that caused you to get um, type 1 diabetes. And I remember looking at him and just saying, dude, shut your face, right? Um, and I remember telling him, like, that doesn't make sense because I've been following Jesus. I know some friends that probably, if, based on your logic, probably should get really sick because they're bad sinners, right? 
So just because you go through something, you've been rejected, you're sick, or you've experienced something traumatic in your life does not mean you have less faith or you're a less Christian. I want to read this. This is from a 19th century preacher. Most of, of stuff I disagree with, but this is a really good, really good quote. He says this. It says, God does not need your strength. He has more than enough power of his own. He asks only for your weakness. He has none of that himself. And he's longing, therefore, to take your weakness and use it as the instrument in his own mighty hand. Will you not, he ends with this question, will you not yield your weakness to him and receive his strength. Paul understood that man suffering, though it does not come from God, it, it's, it's graffitied God's plan. It's suffering and death has disfigured creation. And though we're not, Paul is not re-describing it, Paul is not saying it's a good thing, he is saying God can take a bad thing and produce good out of it. But Paul also says two things happen when you allow suffering to do its work, or when you, better yet, when you allow God to work through your suffering. Two things will happen. Number one, God will strip you of wrong motivations. Like when you go through a difficult circumstance, like all the extraneous stuff, right? The Dallas Cowboys, they won or they lost, right? I didn't get my Starbucks right. Come on. Right? Traffic was horrible, and I punched somebody in their face. I've never experienced done that, okay. Like we get, it, it all, even, even motivations, like I, I'm just coming to church, and you're kind of you, like faking it. Like I just want people to think that I'm doing well, and I'm raising my hands. God, God still loves you. But all those false motivations are stripped when you go through suffering and difficulty. God begins to work on your heart. Suffering is not meaninglessness. Suffering is not without purpose. It's funny, this, this week I read um, this French philosopher, and you're gonna, you're gonna not love this. He, uh, he's, he's a nihilist, and he's advocating for non-existence. His premise is life is meaningless, life has no purpose, suffering is arbitrary, suffering, there's no such thing as evil, uh, we're just basically the product of a collision of atoms, so we should advocate for not making any more babies. Eventually, he's making an argument for the case of the annihilation of the human species because suffering is meaningless. Suffering has no purpose. The Christian response to that is suffering is evil. Suffering does not come from God, but God will work through suffering to bring his purpose to fruition. He will strip you of wrong motivations. And then number two, are you ready for this? Uh, this is good teaching this morning. Number two, in suffering, God sets your priorities right. Isn't it funny how we just go through life, you have babies, and then uh, maybe you, you finally you acquiesce, you get the minivan, 
right? And so you're driving your kids around uh, to, to football games and basketball games, and you're going through life, and, and you know, maybe you're at work, and you're trying to, you have, you know, you have your uh, things, your quota to fill and things to do. If we're not careful, we just kind of go through life, and we forget what the most important thing is. And the most important thing for Paul is Christ proclaimed. The most important thing for Paul is the gospel. The most important, if you're a Christian, the most important thing is first not your family. Is first not meant how you feel, and those are important things. The most important thing is the gospel. It's the good news. Is Jesus being announced? Are people hearing about the good news? Am I involved in this beautiful project of rescuing, God rescuing the world? That is the most important thing for Paul. And when we go through suffering, it kind of resets us. Like it's like a good old chiropractor, right? You go to a chiropractor, he resets your back. It's like when we go through suffering, it's like a resetting of your thinking. It's, it's, it helps you reprioritize your life and put the main things or make the main things the main thing. And so Paul continues, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And he continues in verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then he says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Can we say that today? Like Paul has, su- I love it. Paul has such a singular focus. Now, what, what, what I'm not suggesting is that, oh, you have to become like Paul and you got to go crazy or you got to be imprisoned or you have to um, experience suffering to, to get closer to Christ. I don't think that's the case. I think you can be close to Jesus without suffering. But God does sometimes allow suffering to bring us closer to Jesus. He says, I rejoice. And then in verse 19, I also rejoice again, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. There it is again. Paul has a strong confidence about his future. He's in the middle of it, of suffering and radical dislocation, right? He feels out of place. He's in prison. He's an apostle. He should be announcing Jesus to the world. And he's chained to a guard, and yet he he declares, even though I'm chained, the gospel is not chained. Because I know God will work everything out. So how how does Paul develop this confidence? And this is where I want to end. How does Paul maintain his confidence focus on King Jesus? How how does he negotiate with the multiple ambiguities of suffering? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Paul daily meditated on God's word. Verse 13, Paul quotes, or excuse me, it's a little bit um, further. I I think it's maybe verse 19. Verse 19, Paul says that um, through your prayers and through the help of Jesus, This will turn out for my vindication. That is straight out of the book of Job. Job chapter 13. Job has friends. 
They're not comforters. They've turned into debate partners. Job has lost everything. And then he makes this startling confession in the middle of suffering that God will turn this out for my vindication. What is Paul doing? He's doing essentially two things. He's talking to these um, imperial guards about Jesus, and he's meditating on God's word every single day. Jesus said, hey, as I close, he's talking to his disciples in John chapter 15, and in seven verses, he uses uh, 10 times the word abide. Everyone say abide. He says, I, I'm, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you abide in me, and you abide in my words, you will bear much fruit. Essentially, Jesus is saying, guys, I want you to come home, or I want you to make my words your home. I want you to settle in my word. I want you to take residence in my word. And if you abide in my words, and my words abide in you, you will bear much fruit for my glory. How, how many of you like, man, you like staying home? every now and then, right? If you're 40 and up, raise your hand. You're not young anymore. You love it. Come on, don't lie to yourself, right? Uh, so this week, it was just, I loved it. It's fall. Come on, how many of you love the fall? You love Christmas? Like, how many of you love, love eggnog lattes? But I love eggnog lattes. And so um, I think it was like Thursday, we got the kids together. They didn't have school the next day. And we put on a Christmas movie. The fire was going. We sprayed some Christmas-like fragrance. And uh, the kids had hot cocoa. And we're just kind of chilling. We, we're just having a good time. And we're, we're settled in. Everyone say settled in. And I remember my son Quincy was sitting right next to me. He had hot cocoa, drank his hot cocoa. And then he put his hot cocoa down. And he put his hands behind his head, kind of leaned back and looked at me. He says, Dad, man, life is good. Life is good. I think what, what Jesus is saying here is, okay, so if you want to develop your confidence, you, you got to know something that your thoughts have consequences, right? There's a causal link between what you do every single day and how you think. Like some of you think you don't think, stop it. Like your brain is always thinking about stuff. And some of us don't realize that we're thinking about the wrong stuff. And some of us need to think about what we're thinking about because as Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the reason why we, we, we get like um, dislocated or somehow we find ourselves off message or off mission or we're like sideways in life and maybe our, our, our perspective on what God is doing as we're going through suffering might get kind of like just convoluted, it's probably because we've allowed our thinking to get away from us. Come on, I love this. This comes from um, Joel Cano. My, my mind has to come back to me, right? Some of us, we lose our mind. Our mind leaves us, and we got to get our mind and our thinking back. Jesus says, you don't have to worry about being fruitful. You don't have to worry about being joyful. You don't have to worry about peace or righteousness or love. What you need to do is you need to learn to make your home in my words. You just be faithful. You be faithful to every single day. Meditate on my words. And check this out. I'll take care of the rest. I'll take care of your babies. I'll take care of your career. I'll take care of your joy. I'll take care of your love. I'll take care of everything else. You just focus. You just place your faith. You make your home. Like you, come on. How much, you just, you, 
put on your slippers, like you get on your PJs, and you just settle in God's Word and let God's Word shape your mind. And when your mind is shaped by God's goodness, that's when you can negotiate everything that comes your way. That's how we live victorious, even when we feel despair. Hear me now, what I'm not saying is that if you go through something, you can't, you can't feel loneliness or despair or worry or scarcity. That's okay to feel that way. It's not okay to stay that way. But at the same time, just so you know, you can be confident that God is gonna work everything out even though you feel like it's not gonna happen. You can be okay with not being okay as long as you're confident that yes, it sucks right now. Yes, I can't, I can't figure everything out, but I do know that God is gonna take this situation in my life, this rejection in my life, how I feel right now in my life, and he's gonna produce good out of it for his glory for the world. I end here. Uh, God comes to Joshua and says, Joshua, if you want to make it, not just make it, and if you want to survive, if you want to go into the Holy Land and fulfill what I have for you, you're going to have to meditate on my word day and night. The word meditate uh, in the Hebrew is haga, and it gives, it's, it's an evocative picture. It's, um, it's a picture of a lion medi meditating or eating his prey. Modern day, it'd be kind of like, how many of you have dogs? A few of you have dogs? All right, you love dogs. Um, I have a dog, and uh, we give him a bone, and he'll take that bone for about eight hours, and he'll just gnaw on that thing. He makes weird noises. He tackles it. He wrestles it. Like, and he's just like, he's going back and forth like he's worrying, like someone's going to take his bone, but he's gnawing on that thing. That is a picture of how we should relate to God's Word. The anthem of the Reformation was sola scriptura, scripture alone, God's Word. What you need more than anything is God's Word. Take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. Some of you need to take 30 minutes before you do anything else. Wake up in the morning and just be, dwell, make your home in God's Word. Let God shape how you think. Let God build your confidence. Let God show you that you have the victory. The victory is your faith. Let God show you that he loves you like you can't even imagine. Don't live by slogans or sayings alone. Please live by God's scripture. Please live by God's word. Come on, God's word is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. God's word, God's word tells us that God's word does not return void, but it will accomplish what it's sent to do. Jesus said man should not live by podcasts alone. Statements alone, stop it. We don't live by philosophers alone or theologians alone or even pastors alone. We live by God's word alone. God is speaking. He's communicating to his sons and daughters. The question is, are you listening? Or do you have an appearance of listening? Do you have an appearance of religion but deny its power? Do you really believe that right now God can do something through you? Can change your heart, your mind, 
can take the bad and produce good. That's where we're at in our generation. If the American church does not reform or go back to the simplicity of following Jesus, the American church will die. But I have good news. Our best days for the church in America are in front of us. And I have confidence. I have confidence that God is gonna do a brand new work in our nation. And I wanna be a church that's a part of that, amen? Amen, I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.